This is the Hope Not Note podcast, where we answer your questions and share inspirational stories to fill your soul with hope. Our mission is to empower hope to those who have been plagued by nope. I'm Dr. Dylan Caswell. And I'm Brandy. And we're here to bring you out of the nope and into hope. Welcome to the Hope Not Know podcast. We are so excited to be with you today and thrilled that you are listening. At the beginning of each podcast, we share our hope stories. And so this past week, we launched the podcast. And for me, my hope story is really just the response of the hope community, our friends, our family, so many people online who have been overwhelmingly supportive with the launch specifically for me and yes I'm a little bit biased but my childhood best friend reached out and she said that our first episode inspired her so much and motivated her to be a better wife and a better mother and for someone who's a stay-at-home mom in a very rural community um, it was just so encouraging for me to know that not only can I hop on the phone and call her and be great friends with her, but I can also inspire her through this podcast that Dylan and I are doing. And so for me, that's my hope story is that I'm inspiring, we're inspiring so many people and the launch of is really inspiring us truly. Um, So Dylan, why don't you share a little bit about your hope story from this past week? Going off of that, I'm on board with you that it's been it's been amazing the amount of support that we've gotten after the first episode release like people just thanking us for the episode and us being able to connect with people like we're grateful to be able to inspire people but what inspires us is when we hear people that have listened to the content and it gets them excited it makes them feel hopeful so my hope highlight I'm gonna stick in the spirit of community actually comes from the NFL huge football fan like love football this is kind of that down part of the year for me where I'm like oh man what do I do because football's not on Mm -hmm. so there's no Thursday night games there's no Saturday college games Sunday Monday they're just there's wide open so we just work but (laughs) but football will be coming back but yesterday for me was just filled with the NFL and really great parts of the NFL that people don't get to see so I want to bring that to light a little bit so one was Netflix released this new docu-series called Quarterback that we started watching. Mm-hmm. I think it's called Quarterback. It is. But it follows Patrick Mahomes, like super biased, but best QB, in my opinion, to do it, at least for the Kansas City Chiefs, because I'm a huge Chiefs fan. <laughs> Go Chiefs. But they follow Patrick Mahomes through the 2022 season, Marcus Mariota and Kirk Cousins. And you get to get a little bit of an insight of the sacrifice that they put in to be able to play this game. And yes, they love the game. They get paid really well but they're taking time away from their families. They're sacrificing their bodies. No part of their career is guaranteed. Like Mahomes has this big contract, but if he goes out and gets an injury, then he's missing out on all this money. So it's, yes, it can be glamorous, but they go through so much. But the other part that goes into the hope story is that one of my clients, we're working together and we were listening to a webinar in the background from this community that the NFL set up called the Legends Community. And basically what it is is that the NFL has set up this community to help take care of the players once they're done playing on the field. Wow. They offer free mental health services. They offer uh, job coaching. A lot of players want to get into coaching for youth athletes, and they know the game really well. They know how to play the game well, but they can't coach it. So now they're getting mentorships. They're getting guys set up within the NFL network to, whether it's broadcasting or filming a game, guys can reach out to the organization and they'll put together a free highlight film for them of their entire career. So the, these amazing things that they're really setting up these players 
for success. And a lot of the players don't even know that this thing exists yet. Mm. So if, if anyone can help spread that message, if they know a person that played in the NFL, let them know that there is this program that they should utilize these benefits because it's awesome to see this business that brings in billions of dollars. And instead of just treating, because it is a business, and, and some teams can treat players like they're an object of you're here to do this thing, make us money, sell tickets, and then see you later, where now the NFL is stepping up and saying, no, we want to take care of you guys long-term because of what you, what you've given to us. Mm-hmm. So yesterday was just a really cool full circle NFL of seeing both sides of, yeah. of the story of that. That's so special. And we love football. So anytime we can celebrate football, we're excited, but that specifically, <laughs> I feel like really encapsules like what we love most is community right and so not only do we love football but both of these examples really show us the importance of community within the things that we love you know and I think we can find community but community is important whenever you have a common interest a common thing that you love and so hearing that about football is really exciting yeah one other really cool point in that webinar was they're talking about the brotherhood Mm -hmm. because you go from being in this locker room with all these guys for I don't know, five years, 10 years. And then when they retire, they like to not be found again, right? They, mm-hmm. they go off to the country. They kind of find these homes where they don't have to answer to the press. They don't have to worry about media. Brett Favre's a great example mm-hmm. on that. Like when he retired, he was out just cutting trees, like just doing his own thing. Like they like to kind of escape because of like, yes, they play the game, but they have to an- answer all these interview questions. Like, Marshawn Lynch, go watch him and see how he handled the stress, which was <laughs> the pretty hilarious. Questions <laughs> the ever. best interview questions <laughs> But the, the, the cool part in that webinar was they were talking about reach out to your brothers. The guys that you played with, reach out to them. And they're like, well, maybe you're having trouble contacting them because you don't know where they live. They got rid of their phone. They don't have mm-hmm. a landline. Well, they have a roster for every guy that's played on every team that you can contact the team they have the, the data to be able to reach out to that guy. Wow. So there's ways for these guys to stay connected to each other, to have that community because it, it's hard to say, but in, unless you're in the locker room, it's hard to understand mm-hmm. that camaraderie. So now like they're out of that, they don't have that anymore. They're off kind of isolated by, by choice, but now they can still go back, call their brother and relive a little bit of that to have that camaraderie still. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's cool to see that they're, doing more and more for the mental health of these players because they give us so much. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, again, they get paid, they get all these benefits, they get all these great things, but they're really sacrificing themselves every time they step on the field. Look at DeMar Hamlin this past year and, and that sacrifice and, and him, him coming back and being able to play again this year. Like, one, what a, what a miracle mm-hmm. and, and what a stage for that to happen on. And shout out to the Buffalo Bills staff and Joe Mika, who yeah. is a really good mentor of mine that um, was part of that the rescue team that helped bring DeMar Hamlin back. And, and I think they got awarded an ESPY or recognized at the ESPYs mm-hmm. the other night. But it really is like you step onto that field and you don't know if you're going to step off. It, it sounds drastic, but you have 350-pound men running four fives, <laughs> slamming their bodies into each other. Yeah, Like it's a dangerous game. And to see that the, this business is stepping up to care about the player, every player, whether you played a year, five years, 10 years, whether you're a Hall of Famer, whether you're on the practice squad, they want to take care of you. Mm-hmm. I, I just thought it was awesome. Yeah, that's so that's so beautiful. And I think just one other point within that, you you shared that for us, us lay people, we don't really know what it's like. But I think we all have ways that we can 
relate in small ways. So really what it is, is those people suffer together and they understand that suffering. And because of that, they can bring each other through it. They can bring each other to joy, to hope, to encouragement, to brotherhood. And I think there's different areas in our lives where, you know, I did volunteer missionary work for a couple of years. And I know that those people that I was with, we have a unique bond because we lived together, we suffered together, we pursued joy together. And so, you know, maybe when you were in high school, it was similar or or college, or maybe if you were part of a really good um, club during college or whatever, you have those people that it's just a unique bond. And I think our one of our hopes with this podcast is that we can create that unique bond within the hope community as well. Yeah, and going off of that, I know we usually do like an action step later on in the show, <laughs> but the first one we can do is just say, reach out to to someone that that person that you suffered with, but you suffered in order to sacrifice in order to receive joy. Eventually, mm-hmm. reach out to those people, whether it was a high school teammate whether it was a college roommate, a college friend, that person that was there for you. As life goes on, things get busier and and we just kind of forget that simple thing of just texting someone and just saying, hey, I was just thinking about that one game that we had together. I'm just thinking about you. I hope all is well. Uh, Hope we can connect soon. And it doesn't take that. Stop scrolling on Instagram for 45 seconds and you can send that text out. Like Mm -hmm. we can find time in the day to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And you did that recently with some of your high school friends, you know, you had someone pass away and you saw them at the funeral, but then, you know, the next day you're like, we need to get together and watch this (laughs) video that we made when we were 12 years old of us doing basically like wild things in the backyard. And, and, but those little, even if they don't get together for another four years, like those little messages go a very, very long way and bring Mm -hmm. an encouragement to people that may be struggling, may be just kind of in a complacent time of their life, or maybe they really, really need hope. And like that small little text or that small little call really goes a long way. For sure. And no, that video will not be available for public viewing. (laughs) (laughs) So let's hop into some questions. (laughs) Our first question for this episode is from a listener named Courtney. And very simply, she asks, in your opinion, what is the first step towards hope? Wow, Courtney, thank you for reaching out. Simple question, complex answer. Yes, I knew you'd say that. Because the first step towards hope, it, it really depends on what that what that individual needs. Mm-hmm. There's a great quote that we start the chapter on sleep, that the bridge between despair and hope is a good night's sleep. So maybe for some people, that first step towards hope is just getting sleep, right? And, and, and what, does, what does sleep look like? What does good sleep look like? It's uninterrupted sleep that you wake up and you feel energized. You feel rejuvenated. You feel like you're that kid again that can get out of bed. Maybe you have to do a little bit of a warm up, but you, you feel like you're ready to skip down to breakfast. Like you're excited to get the day going. So many people that we see there, they're not getting into deep sleep. And, and there's a lot of things, a lot of repercussions that, that come from that. One is that you don't get this spike of growth hormone because we get growth hormone spike kind of two times during the day. One is if you're doing exercise, and the other one is when you're in deep wave sleep. If you're not getting deep wave sleep, you're not getting growth hormone shot through your system, which growth hormone sets the stage for us to recover and for us to heal. Mm. So if someone has a muscle strain, the first question that we're asking them is, what is your sleep? Because if you're not getting enough sleep, you're not getting the growth hormone, you're not getting the chemistry that you need for the healing response to occur. Another thing that happens in sleep is that our body has a lymphatic system that cleans out waste. Our brain doesn't have a lymphatic system. 
when we sleep, basically think of a car wash and how you have mud on your car, you go through, the car wash gets blasted, the mud leaves it, you leave, if you're in upstate New York, you leave Delta Sonic, your car's really waxed, good looking thing. <laughs> your brain, the same thing happens, but it's with cerebral spinal fluid, and that happens when we're sleeping. So we start looking at things like plaques forming in the brain, or dementia, or Alzheimer's, like those types of conditions, and it really goes back to, they're not getting that wave happening when they're sleeping. So for some people, that first step towards hope is getting a good night's sleep. Some people, that first step towards hope is becoming grateful. And it's it can be challenging if you're in a season of suffering to be grateful, but it's finding these little things that go a long way. I know for me, one practice that I like to use is that if I start to get stressed, if I start to get anxious, if I start to feel like, oh, man, I don't I don't have enough or I'm not doing enough, I'll sleep on the floor and I'll sleep on the floor for three days, five days a week, however long it takes until my brain goes, wow, you have a great bed. Mm. Like you can be grateful for that one thing. Like we don't need all this other stuff. And then when you're on the floor, you start going, wow, you know what? I'm grateful that I have a blanket on me on this floor. I'm thankful that I'm on this floor and there's a carpet on it. I'm thankful that I'm on the floor and there's walls surrounding me. And then when my brain starts to switch, okay, now you get to go back into your comfortable bed. But the minute that you start to take that for granted, I almost like ground myself of you're going back to the floor Mm -hmm. (laughs) until you're grateful. So for some people, it can be grateful. But I'd like to turn it back to you and and see when in episode one, we're talking about some of the the struggles that you went through and, and how you found hope and how you competed in your first CrossFit competition and, and really got through this thing of, of complex regional pain syndrome and chronic pain and people telling you that you're never going to do this again. What was that? What was the first step of towards hope for you? Wow. Thanks for asking. Yeah. I think um, I shared a little bit in, in the other episode, but my friend who challenged me to write down the things I was grateful for was really, really a huge step. Like, probably one of the biggest steps, if not the first step. And I'm fortunate because I, when I was in my darkest, deepest hopelessness time of my life was right at the end of college when I, and then right when I started my missionary years, when I was volunteering and I was surrounded by really great community during that time. And so even though I had, you know, this despair and hopelessness, I think my first step towards hope was that I literally got placed surrounded by community that could basically I actually I painted this image for a friend of mine during that time where I kept saying I'm stuck in the suck and I really felt like I was stuck in the suck but I, I painted this image of me feeling like that but realizing that they they basically had like a chain around me and they were pulling me mm-hmm. out of it and then slowly from being pulled I could you know turn around and maybe crawl and then maybe after I was done crawling I could walk and maybe stumble but like walk a little bit and eventually I'd, I'd be running and and there would be you know no suck or mm-hmm. despair or hopelessness or whatever and so I look back and I was very fortunate to have people around me and the people around me were really my first step mm-hmm. I know not everyone has that I think of I don't want to say not everyone has that because I think people can have it but sometimes they don't realize they have it I think of you know a family member of mine stay-at-home mom, doesn't really have a lot of friends, 
basically just pays attention to her children and her husband, that can be her community. But often we need people even outside of our immediate circle. And for me, my first step in hope was people outside of my immediate circle and being surrounded by community that didn't really know my whole backstory, never knew my childhood, never went to my hometown, but still were there to support me. Yeah, I think as you're saying this, what I'm thinking of is that I'm really starting to struggle with the term hang in there when someone's struggling. Mm. Because like, let's take it from a fitness perspective. If you're doing a dead hang, what's the eventual outcome? You're going to fall. Like you're not going to accomplish, you're going to get off the bar. So when we we say this term hang in there, it comes from a good place. I think what it means is that I, I, I have your back. I know you're struggling. Hang in there. You will see the other side of this. But the term hang in there, I think we can change that mm-hmm. instead of hanging in there because that's that's now thinking that hang in there until you can't hang anymore and then fall. <laughs> and then once you fall, then we'll reach back out and we'll figure out how to get you up off the floor. <laughs> Where That's where having community is, hey, hang there. I'm going to come and reach my arm down. Now hang on to my arm and let me pull and, mm-hmm. and get you out of this. But I think reflecting back on so there's a, there's a famous Hope researcher that was at the University of Kansas, and his name is uh, C.R. Schneider. And he defined Hope as the, this trilogy of self-agency, goal-directed behavior, and a framework to achieve. So I think looking back, what's, what's now maybe what I would say, what's the first step? It's self-agency. It's realizing that if you are hanging in there, you can reach up and grab a friend's arm and they can help pull you out. Mm-hmm. It's recognizing that I can take control and get better sleep. Maybe I don't have that coffee at 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. Maybe I just go, you know, I'm going to be a little bit tired, but I'm actually going to get some good sleep tonight. Maybe it's reaching out to friends. But reflecting back, I think the first step is self-agency. Self-agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in, with self-agency, right now if you're listening and you're not feeling hope and maybe you don't even feel that self-agency, that's kind of our job, right? Our job is to empower you to believe that you do have self-agency. And, and that's really our mission is that we can empower you. And I think that there are other people around you. I know for me, when I look at friends who have struggled, I've always wanted to empower them and empower them and empower them because I can tell that they don't, they don't believe that they can do anything. They really just have this like defeated attitude. Some of them, not all of them, but our hope is that we can really empower you to have that self agency and, and take that first step. Yeah. And oftentimes we get stuck on this thing happened to me. Why is this happening to me? This sucks, which is fair. Yeah. That That is allowed and you. You should go through that. It's part of the grieving process. It's part of healing from the trauma is recognizing that, no, it's not fair. Like that, that was a crappy situation and, and that sucks. Like that's, that's okay. But what we need to then realize is that we, we cannot control what happens to us. Like we're, we're not in control of that. But what we can do is choose our response instead of a reaction. So what does that mean? Well, a reaction is that emotional knee-jerk reaction. Person cuts me off. I want to flip them the bird and <laughs> yell and beep the horn, right? That's a reaction. Versus a response would be going, okay, let me take a breath. That got my system a little jacked up but I'm sure that they had a really good reason to come out in front of me. 
they might have a family emergency, they might be in a rush, whatever it is, it happened, but no one got injured, mm-hmm. right? We chose a response. So many times we see this a lot and it's, I don't want to say it's a pet peeve, but I'll just say it gets me fired up. Even people go, well, we have a lizard brain. And because we have this lizard brain, this thing controls our emotions. So therefore we can't control what comes out of us. No, 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 no. We have an amygdala. The amygdala helps to filter these things and and dictate, do we need to go to the autonomic nervous system or can we send this up to the brain for higher processing? And the more that you practice, the more that you condition, you can control that quote unquote lizard brain. Wow, (laughs) enough said with that. Yeah, I mean, great question to to kick it off. (laughs) Courtney, thank you so much for that question. Our next question is from a listener named Jack, and he references the book and says, in your book, Hope Not Nope, you mentioned ACL surgery is not always needed. How do we know when or when not it should be done? Jack, great question. I feel like these questions, they're like, they're pretty simple, but they're very long-winded answers because this one we have to set the groundwork for sure because people listening they might go what no if you tear your acl you need to get it reconstructed and if you don't get it reconstructed then you can't return back to these activities or these sports or things like this and really in the football spirit <laughs> john elway actually played without an acl not his whole career but in the super bowl i forget what year it was maybe 98 I don't, i'm not sure but the year that they won the super bowl John Elway towards ACL and they, they said you need to have surgery on it because that was the practice at the time. That was the cert, that was the protocol at the time. And John Elway said, I'm not getting a surgery. I want to play in these games. Like I have fought this whole season. I fought my whole career for these moments. I'm not just going to stop playing. So he just refused it. And because he refused it, he doubled down on quad strengthening on quad reactive stability did a really good quad strengthening program and he played and he played well wow. without having the surgery. There's been other players that have done it. Uh, Dewan Blair, Heinz Ward, a lot of really high level professional athletes that have torn their ACL, not had the surgery and then performed well after the season, they may go and have it done, but that's a whole different story because they, they're making a lot of money per week. Mm-hmm. They're making a lot of money per day. If you're not going to have the surgery, then you would be defined as a coper, and that could take two to three months to identify if you're going to be a coper or a non-coper. So if a person, a professional athlete that's making all this money per day, if they go two months and then they're identified as a non-coper, well, they just lost out on two months of money. Mm. So professional athletes tend to be rushed into it unless they decline it. But from that, the general public has now gotten the idea that this is how you manage ACL injuries, is that you need to have the surgery done. And there's research out of Delaware that has really shown that, no, you don't need an ACL reconstruction. And there's a category or these assessments that'll let you know if you're a coper or non-coper. So briefly what they are is, is, in general terms, is can you restore good quad strength and good stability? Because then that's gonna take over the job of the ACL. Secondarily, can you move and not have an episode of buckling or your knee giving way? Because that now identifies that the quad in this feed forward mechanism is, is doing its duty. Quick, quick kind of side rant from this is like, <laughs> I always struggled in school when we learned that the ACL is a primary restraint to tibial anterior, anterior translation. 
what that means is the shin, the thigh bone, the ACL would prevent the shin from moving forward. But we're always taught the ACL is the primary restraint to tibial anterior translation. But the only reason that the ACL would tear is because the feed forward mechanism has failed. The feed forward mechanism is that the brain has already sent the signal down to the leg, down to the body, to the movement system to contract in the way that it needs to contract to do that movement. When that feed forward mechanism has failed, that's when the ACL tears. So the way I look at it is our primary restraint to anterior tibial translation is the feed forward mechanism of our neuromuscular system. The secondary restraint then becomes the ACL. So with that being said, if this is now the secondary restraint, then what if we focus our time on the primary restraint, which is that feed forward mechanism? And if we focus our time on that, this person likely doesn't need to have the surgery. There's a lot of research showing this now. There's research showing that the ACL may even heal on its own in one to 4% of the population. Wow. But the, the coper non-coper, there's now further research showing long-term that if the person was first identified as a non-coper, meaning that they would be a candidate for surgery, but they don't have the surgery, a year later, they're now identified as a coper. Hmm. Which then really begs the question, do we need the ACL reconstruction at all? Right. And I think sometimes we do. If the knee is, is very unstable, it's buckling a lot, it's a younger athlete because this research is in people from like 18 to 35. So if someone's 14 or 15 years old, I don't know if we can take that data and apply it to this population. Okay. But I think the conversation goes, well, let's at least give people a chance. Let's at least present this data to them and give them that option that if you do this really good quad strengthening program, you use progressive overload, you decrease your kinesophobia, which is your, your fear of the movement, and you feel confident that you can get back to your sport, then let's use that option. If you're terrified of this thing and you're not going to be dedicated to a good non-surgical program, okay, then, then maybe we can offer that. So how do you know if you need the surgery? Wrapping that up. <laughs> if your knee is buckling, if your quad isn't able, able to restore its previous ability. Um, and I think those are the two main ones. Okay. So it's not as black and white of no one needs the surgery and everyone needs the surgery. It, it really just depends on the person, the situation. And in some ways, their belief system of if you really believe you need the surgery, then you probably should get the surgery because you believe that that's what's going to heal you. But if you believe that you can do all these other things and go through that rehab program and and things like that, then that might be the, the better route. One question within that, does it matter? Like how, what's the healing process for these things? So someone tears their ACL decides not to have the surgery is it like a still 12 12 months versus they tear their acl have the surgery like what's the recovery yeah so if they if they are a coper and and they stay in that coping category and they do really well in the pro they can get back sooner rather than later so they can get back it's hard to give a time frame because it depends on how dedicated that they are to the program sure but we're looking at like a range of four or five six months maybe seven months where if you have the surgery, it should be at a minimum nine months before that athlete returns. A lot of people are getting cleared at seven months because the healthcare system is saying, yeah, checked off, you're good to go, but they're not getting good functional tests done. They're not Mm -hmm. getting a good level of quad strength measured. 
they're not going through a good quad strengthening program and, and they end up having a high risk for retear. So that is one thing I tell athletes is that we can do this non-surgically. And if we do this, and let's say that you start as a, as a coper, but then you turn into a non-coper, well, your outcome after the surgery is now even better because of the prehab that you did before mm-hmm. going into it. So there's really not lost time. And that, that, that tends to get people. But one story that I can share that comes up is that there's a lot of factors that go into this. Like one for a pro athlete, it's, it's money, it's agents, it's all the stressors that they take. But then what about the general population? Uh, I was working with this one individual who was a coper. Phenomenal, like back mountain biking, back doing CrossFit, back doing high level activity, and he was doing great. But this individual still had a fear of what if my knee does buckle? What if my knee does give way? It, it just doesn't feel right. A part of this too was also that he was switching job positions and he wasn't sure what his healthcare insurance was gonna be. And because of that, he goes, well, maybe I should just have the surgery mm-hmm. while I have the insurance because I don't wanna get two years into this, have an occurrence of my knee buckling and then not have the insurance to be able to pay for this. So it was a tough decision. And I remember him being pretty torn up and almost like like he was afraid to share it with me because he thought I would be disappointed. And I was like, no man, like I understand that. And if that's what you wanna do, then let's do that. Here's the best surgeon that I would go to in, in our area. And once you finish that up, we're gonna get right back into the program and I got you. Mm. And, and just to see his shoulders go from being attached to his ears back down to this nice resting position was a beautiful thing. So, you know, it, it's really coming alongside that person's decision, but it's more of a question of, can we get people the information, the full story that then allows them to truly make that decision? Because there's other research showing the way that is presented will dictate if a person has a surgery or not. And this has been shown in the shoulder, for example, of, yeah, there's a 40% chance that you'll do okay from this rotator cuff repair versus, yeah, it's a flip of a coin. You could do a conservative management program or you could do surgery and both are going to lead to a good outcome. Like when people are presented with that, they tend to not choose the surgery. But when people go, yeah, no, go and try that thing, but you're going to need surgery. Most of the time they're going to end up needing surgery, not because they actually need the surgery, but because that seed was planted. Right. Well, I think that's the case for communication in general. Like if, it's, it's not just the words you say, but it's how, it's how you say it and your, your body posture and, and nonverbal cues. And when people are in a doctor's office or what have you, and they're getting this information, depending on the posture of the person delivering the information and the, and the posture of the receiver of, you know, what they're nervous about or what, or if they're excited or whatever, that's going to play a role. And, and we desire to just get you the information ahead of time and, or, maybe not ahead of time, but just to give you the information so that you can make a a better decision about it. Absolutely. So thank you, Jack, for that question. And our last question for the day is from a listener named Teresa. And she says, how do you use workouts to inspire hope in your day-to-day life? For context, I'm a stay-at-home mom who works out regularly. I've noticed that in certain areas of my life, I feel discouraged, unmotivated, and somewhat hopeless. How can I use exercise to channel that change that I want to see? That is a beautiful question. 
I know we're only on episode three, and I don't know if we're allowed to have favorite episodes, <laughs> and I don't know if I've delivered like great answers, but I really love these questions that we've had, <laughs> and this third question is a phenomenal question. So I'm not able to answer from the perspective of a mom or as a parent, so take this with a grain of salt, I guess is how I would phrase it, but I can share with how I use workouts in my day-to-day life in order to help me do the other things that I do. Because a lot of people have this perception of, well, you're a sports specialist, you're a physical therapist, you're a performance coach. So yeah, working out's part of your day. But the reality is like, it's hard to work out. It's hard to find times to work out because you're just giving so much to other people that really have to make it priority to the point that in our Google calendar, we have like blocks that are scheduled this time workout. And even if we can't get in a full hour, we get in a 10 minute wad or a 15 minute wad. So we're using that. But the reason I, I use that is because it really gets me through the week. It's a thing that, that really picks me up. It's something that's been a staple to my life for as long as I can remember. And for me, what better way to get yourself to experience joy than by suffering? And, and no matter what we do, there's going to be suffering involved. So with this, when we're exercising, we're, we're now choosing to have some physical suffering for a greater purpose. So that's one reason I, I like to do that. The other reason I like to do that is because if you're in a good exercise routine and you're using the principles of motor, motor learning, which are that an activity has to be challenging, but you, you can be successful with it. Maybe not the first time, but if you keep practicing, you can be successful. So that sets up this mindset that when an obstacle is placed in front of me and I keep working at it, I will be able to overcome it. And now that transfers into so many other aspects of your life. Because now it's not just learning a Turkish get up or a ring muscle up or name the movement. It's my baby's crying at two in the morning. I need to go feed him or change him, whatever it may be. Well, I have some previous experience of when an obstacle came up when I was suffering and I faced adversity that I showed myself that I can step up to the plate to do this because the brain works from prediction factors and it goes off of previous experiences and previous memories to pull from. So if it's in a new situation, it's going to pull from things that are somewhat alike that. So if we can build this library of us suffering, but facing an obstacle and overcoming it and knowing that. Yeah, you know, that workout was hard. Like one that comes to mind is acid bath because we were talking about it the other day. It's very appropriately named. It's a short workout. But then after the lactic acid starts accumulating throughout your body because it doesn't know where to go, your body's trying to pump it to other muscles that can take care of it. And it doesn't have anywhere to go because your whole body's kind of wrecked from this. So you're on the ground for like 30 to 45 minutes afterwards. But you look back and you're like, wow. I overcame that, like that amount of discomfort, that amount of pain. After that 40 minutes of rolling on the floor, I got up again. So now when you're, when you feel like you're stuck, when you're in that hole and you're reaching for community, you know that it's possible. So I think workouts allow you to do that. And I think as, as a new parent, I'm sure there's a lot of obstacles that come up. You're, you're, you're serving this human because the human's not able to service themselves. Mm-hmm. So like you're going in and out of your way, 
but it's giving you that little time in the day for you to love yourself and to do something for yourself and to take care of yourself. And, and some of our friends, it's amazing watching them and their dynamic of he gets home from work, he'll go work, he'll go work out in the garage. The kids will be inside. He'll go inside, take care of the kids. The mom will come out and get her workout in. And then they're, then they have family time. But the whole time the kids are inside, but they're peeking out the window to see what daddy's doing, to see what mommy's doing. So now they're setting this example because what do kids want to do? They want to do the things that their parents are telling them that they can't do. <laughs> so there's, no, you have to stay in. So now they're seeing this thing that they're being told, hey, no, you can't do this yet. So now they want this. Mm-hmm. Like now they're excited for it <laughs> to the point that his son came out one time and he's like, hey, man, you got to go back inside. And, and he goes, does a squat. And my buddy goes, okay, yeah, that's a squat. And he does a deadlift. He goes, okay, yeah. And then he does a sit up. And I'm like, he's learning what to do to be able to stay in the gym. And what a, what a cool example mm. to, to set for that. But what I, what I would say is that it's so important to find those little windows. It doesn't have to be this glamorous workout that's an hour or two hours long. It doesn't need to be this perfect thing of the best warm up followed by dynamic mobility, followed by power, then strength and endurance, and then a cool down with stretching <laughs> and lay on the ground and meditate and do diaphragmatic breathing. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have a family to take care of. Give yourself 10 minutes. You know, the analogy I always use is that if, if your gas tank is empty, it's better to stop and put in a couple dollars than to just keep trying to roll home. So think of it that way that you're getting these these little little bits of it and that's gonna stock up over time. Mm-hmm. I love that. And a couple of things I thought about as you were sharing, um, one of them going back to my previous experience, one of the things that we, we did when we were working out was, um, or during my volunteer work was we would do a really early morning workout once a year and um in the spirit of remember the titans very similar very similar in the spirit of football very similar to remember the titans where we would get woken up in the middle of the night or early early morning you know 3 a.m basically and we would all go and work out and i've i've done this workout and you work out till the sun comes up and i've done this um i think seven times over the past you know 10 years and During that time, I had chronic pain, complex regional pain syndrome. I had a very serious eating disorder that, um, you know, I was eating like less than 500 calories a day, like just craziness, you know, and, but I was still able to, to do those workouts and sure, I, I maybe walk instead of ran or, or what, whatever, depending on the year, but I look back at that time. And I'm not a mom yet by any means, but I look back and I'm like, if I have the opportunity and the blessing to be a mother someday, when, when my kid's crying in the middle of the night, I can remember that. And I think that's, that, that's what you're telling our, our question, um, asker Teresa is that you've been, you've already been through challenges. So pull from those, those experiences and let them motivate you in, in this current season. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I thought of as you were sharing was I, I know for myself, there's times where I work out because I think to myself, oh, I have to go get a workout in. Like, I know it's good for my body, so I'm going to go do it. And there's almost this, like, negative tone towards the workout. Or there's this anxious tone of, like, oh, if I don't work out, I'm going to be so anxious today, so I need to go work out. 
Um, and what I've been doing my best to do, and I don't even know if I've told you this, but especially in preparation for the competition I did recently, I was doing my best to get excited Mm -hmm. for every workout. And I think her question, you know, how do I use exercise to channel a change that I want to see? I think it's try to go into every single time that you work out. Like Dylan said, whether it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour, go into every exercise with an excited attitude of, I want to be a big kid and play. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to go have fun. And even if the workout crushes you or maybe it doesn't crush you, it doesn't matter the outcome, but try to be excited for it because I think that that excitement, that joy, that I want to be a big kid, like that's going to bless you in the other areas of your life more than, oh, I need to work out because I'm anxious or, oh, I need to work out because if not, mm-hmm. like then I'm going to feel unproductive today or whatever. Like having an excited attitude really goes a long way. Yeah, and, and let me provide another example here because we gave the one of the mom and dad switching off, but maybe this person is at home and, and the husband or the father is at work, so they don't have the option of just leaving the baby and, right. and doing a workout. Make the baby part of it. Mm-hmm. It's so much fun. Like I've had a few moms that I've, that I've worked with in the past that they, well, they made cleaning the house a workout routine. They had a new puppy and a new baby. <laughs> wow. Um, both were pooping on the floor. So she had a lot of cleanup <laughs> to do. And she's like, I don't, the, the spare time that I have, I'm going around cleaning up the house. And I was kind of jokingly, but then I was like, well, no, this could actually work. But I was like, what if you are scrubbing the floor, but you're holding a plank as you're doing it? <laughs> or when you're picking up your baby, you're, you're doing a thruster. Like you're squatting with the baby and then you're just like lifting the baby up overhead. Like find these little micro doses of movement throughout the day. We so underestimate how important play is and how important running fast is. So another fun one, like babies are figuring out their death perception, put them in a, in a little, what do you call it? Holder? Like a walker. Like a walker, yeah. a little bouncer thing. Yeah. Like have them be there and then do shuttle runs. Because now mommy's coming to get close to my face. Oh, I'm excited. Mommy's running away. Oh no, where are you going? Mommy's coming back. And then Aww. as the mom, it's enjoyable. Like you can even do, instead of touching the, the cone, you give the baby little kisses. Mm-hmm. You, you run, slow down, don't headbutt the baby. <laughs> but you slow down, you give the baby a kiss on the, on the forehead. You run to the next cone and come back. You do those shuttle runs at a good speed. You're looking at a five minute workout. And you're going to get the benefits as if you did a two-hour workout. Mm-hmm. So it's not about, again, this like perfect routine. It's about play. It's about getting the work done and making it realistic where you can actually do it during the day. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And Teresa, I hope that, that, that those answers really bless you and help you. And um, I love the idea of the running one. And so I hope that you take, take that into consideration because I just think it'd be fun. And I just imagine kids' faces be like, oh. Oh, really excited and then like confused and I don't know I just think that it's a way to laugh throughout yeah. the day as well so run peekaboo <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um so Teresa Jack Courtney thank you so much for submitting your questions this podcast really runs off of your questions and off of the hope community and so please submit your questions if you're listening we would love to answer them so go over to hope.nope.org and submit a question whether it's 
you know, health, hope, focus, fitness, ACL, you know, we we're here to answer. Um, and so please consider to do that. And please consider rating the show. I know we're only on the third episode, but your rating really helps us. So give it a five star, leave us a review on Apple, share this with a friend, share this on social media. Um, please do your best to just help us spread this message of hope. Absolutely. And if you're interested in the research that we've mentioned in the show, shoot us an email and we can send that out to you. Mm-hmm. I have all of these studies stored in folders and saved. So if you're interested in diving into that material and reading it firsthand and making your own opinions on it, reach out to us, let us know, because we're happy to, to get that stuff into your hands. Have a great week. And remember that it's not just a day to be hopeful. It's an opportunity to become hope. The Hope Not Note podcast is meant for educational, informational, and personal development purposes only and does not constitute any health or medical advice. If you're looking for specific advice, connect with us to work with a Hope Coach. The Hope Not Note podcast shall not be liable or responsible for any loss or damage allegedly arising from any information or suggestions in this podcast.